Previously described by many other versions of ourselves as masterpieces, I am uh, the uh, um, pointless futureless bag of spare parts, Nick, and I am joined by the similarly pointless futureless bag of spare parts, Roger. But we feel really good about it. <laughs> we do, and in a way, isn't that just like us? I don't know what I'm talking about there, but let's move on to the film we're talking about, which is 2010's Never Let Me Go. Uh, this was um, directed by Mark Romanek, a Who's screenplay. Mostly oh, made music videos. Yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, it's not a, not a great recommendation. It, that does include the music video for Hurt, the Johnny Cash uh, well, that's a pretty so. good music video, to be fair. Uh, he's also made, uh, for feature films, he made Static and One Hour Photo. Oh, really? Uh, well, I don't think I've seen either of them, but they both they both have their enthusiasts, at least. Uh, one Hour Photo is the one with a, a, a non-Robin Williams, one Robin Williams, as I recall. Um, <laughs> is it either a serial killer or a creepy man? He actually, he actually is as creepy as you always think he is. Yeah. <laughs> So this, uh, it was uh, written, and we don't always talk about the writer, but it's probably relevant here, uh, by Alex Garland, uh, based on the novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. Ishiguro? Yeah. Uh, who who is a friend of his? So he'd actually started work. He'd actually got the initial script before the book had had been published. Yes. Um, now Kazuo, um, uh, sorry, Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, I. I I've been familiar with his work through films in that he wrote, um, which may be relevant again for this film, The Remains of the Day, um, mm -hmm. which is a one of the most frustrating films <laughs> you'll ever watch in that it, it basically entirely comprises Anthony Hopkins not telling Emma Thompson that he loves her. That's <laughs> that's the whole film. <laughs> but it's drawn out over many hours. Um, now, now you see, a, a normal person just has to be in the same room as Emma Thompson to tell her that he loves her. <laughs> exactly. But... Um, it's um, it's frustrating, um, but it is shot through with a layer of melancholy and longing and lost time, which I think may be relevant when we come to talk about Now and Let Me Go. Um, so I, I suppose the brief summary is um, we have a, a group of children growing up in uh, uh, an apparently normal boarding house uh, in, uh, in London. Uh, it seems like a middle class... Let's no, say boarding school. Boarding school. Sorry, yes, not a boarding house. It's something very different. Um, uh, and we are uh, we mainly follow the lives of Tommy, uh, Ruth, and Kathy um, as they find themselves in each other um, and grow up. So it is partly a coming coming of age drama. It's a coming of age drama with a twist because we're told fairly early on that these are. Um, clones basically they have been brought up and their sole purpose in life is to be harvested for organs for the norms the normal people they would never really they never have a term to use for normal people and we have almost no normal people in the film um, and they I guess the film is about them kind of passively accepting this fate well, it, it is happening on multiple levels, and I think we'll we'll come back to that. Uh, I I came into this with with a bias against it because it's a pattern that we've we've seen a lot before. A an author who is not uh, a science fiction author is mo you know mostly litfic. Yes, uh, decides to do a science fiction story, and they say, "Look at these amazing ideas I had." Uh, so, so I went and checked, and Larry Niven published The Jigsaw Man in 1967, which, which when is... When was this published? 2005. Uh, 2005, 2005 for the book. Okay. Uh, so The Jigsaw Man is basically a, a guy is in prison, slated to be executed, and he's trying to break out. 
and the twist is that he is in prison and is later to be executed for speeding tickets because he can be taken apart and his organs can save lives and the the mass the the massed public really likes having organs that can save their lives so they vote for harsher and harsher penalties so eventually yes um I, and that's a short story presumably yeah uh, there's also Ursula begins the ones who walk from away, walk away from Omalas, which is basically here. Here is this city which is perfect, except that for reasons there is one child who has to be kept in the dark and, and in horrible conditions, and some people realise that hang on a minute, I can't live with this and walk away, and others don't. Well, I suppose uh, for that matter, it, it kind of has resonances all the way back to H.G. Wells with the time machine and this utopian society which is supported by the misery um, uh, of another class of creatures or people. Um, oh, they're not that so. miserable. They're very happy out there in the sunlight, but, but uh, they, they just get <laughs> well, eaten occasionally. Well, that's true, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, not, quite, it's not quite the same thing, but it's not... Um, it's a well-trodden, but not just clones... But the idea that uh, a society that is um, supported... I mean, you know, we have uh, the American South and many other societies as well. You know, And this film, I think, is trying to say something about... Uh, I don't know if it is, but it certainly has echoes of slavery. Yeah, um, I, I should say I haven't read the book. Uh, my wife has, and although she tends to feel the same way I do about SF writer, non-SF writers writing SF, she reckoned that, that it was still pretty pretty good. So okay, we may be well, missing things. We may be being unfair to it. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to well, rush away and read it. It's fair to say the film does not play uh, the the SF um, side of it very strongly. Uh, which to many people may be to its credit. Uh, we probably well, both have it, problems with that. I think if it were a science fiction story, it might yeah. well make some of the same assumptions. They might do a slightly better job of underpinning them. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, but it would probably be about fighting the system. At the, yes. And one of the things we see here is that nobody ever even thinks, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I won't go into hospital and have my vital organs removed. Maybe I'll run away. The closest they get to rebelling is applying for a, a deferment, which turns out doesn't exist. But, you know, that's the closest they get to rebellion. No one ever talks about the fact we've got this car, we can go anywhere we like, basically. I mean, presumably they don't have passports or anything. But, uh, and again, this is something that's not explored that probably would have explored, been explored in SX film. You have to assume there's got to be some kind of underground railroad in that kind of situation. Yeah. But it's never, as you say, it's, well, as I said in the summary, it, it's not a film about them passively accepting them. I don't think it's really about that, but it is... I, I think you know, the system is working as intended because any rebellious instincts they have are safely channeled into things that do no harm, as far as the system is concerned. Yes. None of them even commit suicide. Because yeah, that, that's that would it. be depriving I mean, that would the system be the, of valuable organs. That would be the ultimate act of rebellion in that sort of situation. Uh, it's really a story of um, a love triangle between Tommy, uh, Ruth, and Kathy. So Kathy is um, uh, uh, Carrie Mulligan, um, played by Carrie Mulligan, who is the the sort of the quieter, more thoughtful, and sort of more wise character. Tommy's the young. Uh, well, they're all young. Uh, by young, I mean. Uh, but I, I suppose the reason Young springs to mind is he's not not the brightest, to be fair to Tommy, um, and he's he's described as sort of a, the angry one. But he, I mean, he has sort of two episodes of rage, and they, I don't, they don't seem uh, he doesn't seem desperately angry, but they, they all seem quite tender and nice. Uh, and then Ruth is the uh, the more kind of. Uh, not worldly wise, because none of them are worldly wise, but the more sort of open and exciting and sort of easier path for uh, Tommy to to find excitement and adventure. So we have this long story um, where Tommy ends up with um, Ruth when it's, it's kind of quite clear, I guess, to everyone that she should be with Kathy. And yeah, and, and they... they... They break up off screen 
quite quickly, but it's after Kathy has committed herself to going off and being elsewhere. Well, again, we may have issues with it. So Kathy applies to be a carer, which is, um, it's a bit, I don't know if it's a bit like to echo slavery. It's a bit like the old kind of, a lot of the overseers in the cotton plantations were slaves themselves, but it was a way of getting sort of one up on the on the others and so yeah i mean you you, you of... can say some f- fairly serious moral questions about is that is that a right thing to do yeah particularly yeah. if since if you don't somebody else probably will uh, but i i suppose i mean that i i don't get the impression um, that uh, kathy does this to one up so much as to escape but it is implied that and i think explicitly stated in the book that there is a long period of training yeah. which takes her away from uh, all the others, and certainly distances her from Kathy and Ruth. Uh, she ends up not uh, sorry from um, uh, Ruth and Tommy. She ends up not seeing them for about ten years. I don't know if that is how long the training period is, or quite what happens. It there. does seem a bit odd because we're, we're told there is all this training, um, but what we actually see her do is basically be an emotional support hospital visitor. Now, I'm, I'm not saying yeah, that's nothing. Yeah. But it does not seem to me a thing you train for multiple years for, necessarily. She's, yeah, she's effectively a counsellor, um, and yeah, that is something, there is a lot of training. You know, I, 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 I will bring you the things you ask for while you're sitting in hospital, and I will hold your hand, and that, that kind of stuff. And I think it's sort of implied that we don't really see the other clones, not that the word is ever, I don't think the word is ever specially used um it's one of those science fiction things where you're not allowed to say the thing that they obviously are <laughs> much like zombies um mm. but you never see the lives of the others particularly but she i i got the impression maybe i misread it that she has more independence than the others she's got her own car and none of the others seem to well that's the other weird thing because there is all this talk about can we put off our donations by this or that and nobody's nobody ever seems to notice that being a carer puts off your donations. Well, that's yeah. Why not just apply to be a carer? She 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 gets another few years at least, which is all they were supposed to get with the deferment. But it's almost like it hasn't been that well thought through. But we'll we'll, we'll come on to that. Um, so they uh, they meet again many years later. Um, in that. Uh, Kathy doesn't become Ruth's carer or not initially she just sees her in the hospital and then I think maybe it's implied that she can then choose to become her carer so again there's a lot of sort of freedom she's also Kathy's sort of spoken to like a normal person by some other people who hmm. seem to be normal it's really hard from the film to understand quite what the attitude of people towards the clones is um, I, I suppose I get the impression they'd rather not have anything to do with them so they don't have to think too hard about the implications of it. Yeah. Um, but all the people we see are broadly sympathetic towards them, uh, including the, the more severe uh, headmistress, Charlotte Rampling. Is it Charlotte Rampling? Yes. I think it was. Um, you can tell by the way she effortlessly takes over the screen the moment she gets near it. Yes, exactly. I thought so. Um, <laughs> I thought I felt happy when she was on the screen, but there we go. Now I know why. Um, and so uh, she, they, uh, through, um, well, this is something you said to me offline, but um, I think is a fair point, which is a slightly disturbing point. That it, at this point in the film, it's implied that how well you do after your donations depends on how strong a moral person you are, or not as moral, but how how good your willpower is, how tough you are. Yeah, I mean, there, there, is to... a, there is a suggestion that you you make four donations, and if you survive all that, then something vague and good happens, though it's never explicitly stated. And some, somebody's saying, well, you know, maybe it's not like that, maybe, you just, maybe they just keep on taking stuff till you're dead. Yes. The, the, what what I really noticed here is there's an awful lot of we don't actually know anything. We've just got what we've been told, but yes. because everything we know is what we've been told, we don't realise there's anything else to know. Yes, yes. Um, but I, I dislike the implication that you know how well you are after a transplant depends on how tough you are, as opposed to say how many pancreases you've got. Yeah, or how how, how much liver is left. And, uh... Yes. 
which seems to be the the limiting factor. I mean, um, we, we we see somebody um, wait about to do a donation who has an eye patch, so presumably that eye was taken on a previous donation. But yes. that, but it is clear that they don't take everybody's eyes at donation number three or whatever. And presumably, it's just on the basis of oh, you know, we 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 need a spleen, and this spleen, this guy matches our tissue type. Yeah, let let's have him in. I think that must be it. Yeah, you just get called up, but it's also implied once you start donating, it's pretty quick. You know, within a few weeks, you're going to be doing your next one and, and your next one and your next one. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's interesting. Um, but uh, then we have sort of this uh, moment where Tommy and uh, Kathy decide to go for a deferment. Uh, and again, it seems to some extent it's difficult because it seems their whole idea seems hopelessly naive. You know, the, the idea that true love, they're going to say, all right, you can keep your organs for a bit. It's just clear that that's not true. Um, but you kind of believe that at least Tommy would believe it. I'm surprised that Kathy goes along with it. Mm much because she's sort of implied to be much wiser than the others well also she's been working within the system you would think that she would notice that nobody ever seems to do this nobody ever seems to say oh well yes I did that and that's why I'm now 30 rather than 20 or whatever yes yeah I think so but I I mean I think she probably is I mean she's played very well by Kerry Mulligan for me I, I have I've seen her briefly in other things. I I was blown away by her. I thought she was very good. Um, I was a, a bit less. Um, oh, th- this is uh, her big breakout role was at an education, which was the year before, um, which is basically schoolgirl falls for unsuitable older man, and it doesn't end well. Oh, um, but I mean, on the one hand, yes, she manages to avoid the standard Hollywood actress look the way they all look sometimes look as if they come out of the same mould. Yes, and, and this this is good. I, I guess you'd call it the sort of girl next door thing, or mm. whatever that would be these days. But I don't. I ha, I haven't knowingly seen her or anything else. I don't know with, whether this is just her style or the way she was deliberately acting. But she's very flat and drippy and yeah. one note, and she just sort of sits there. Whereas Kara Knightley, who is particularly in, in the later part of her role, deliberately look, looking um, strung out and unwell because she's about to die. Uh, yes, he's always fair. more animated. It's funny. I came away with the opposite impression. I was less impressed with Keira Knightley, who I have enjoyed in other films. Um, but here, I just felt her acting was a bit... Uh, maybe it is because she was overstated and uh, Kathy Kerry Mulligan is, is understated. I have to um, assume it's a deliberate contrast. I, I guess so. And, and maybe that's a personal preference. Um, uh... Maybe they're just they're both good at those characters, and we just respond differently to to the different mm. characters. Um, uh, Andrew Garfield, who is a future Spider Man at this point. Yeah, so he he wasn't. I mean, he he got a bit of attention for this. I think a bit more in the Social Network that we talked about came out the same year. Oh gosh, yeah, he's in that too. Yes, that's uh, true. But yeah, it, it, Spider Man was the okay. We we the, this is now a name role for him. Um. He's good in this too. Yeah. Um, uh, it, I'm, I'm particularly impressed with uh, I've, I've forgotten the uh, child actor's name, um, Isabel Michael Small, uh, as a young Kathy, because they actually found someone who looks a bit like Carrie Mulligan. They as a did. Child. I mean, they're all reckoned. I, I thought the uh, the child actors were all very good, um, and apparently, what they did for the film was get the uh, the the grown-up actors to act out the scenes as the children, partially so that they would have a memory of, you know, playing that scene through when they were doing the grown-up scene, partially for the child actors to watch and see how to how their characters would behave, which, I, it works quite well, because I thought hmm. all the child actors were very good. I it, found... it, It's a tough job. I mean, the, people talk about three-act structure, and I don't always spot it, but here it's really very obvious. We've, hmm. we've got title cards for each act, and basically the first more or less third of the film is the kids. Yeah. It's carried yeah. by the kids. They need to be good, and they are. They are good, yeah. Absolutely. I, I agree, and we've had our, our issues. Uh, certainly you've had your issues with child actors before, but here they are. It didn't feel like a, a weird jump, like, who are these people now, when they are grown up. They're, they're believably grown-up versions of those characters. Mm. Um, I found the first third harder to watch, honestly, um, 
whether that's me getting sentimental, but I, I, I found it harder to think of these children with no future than when they were grown up with no future. I, I, I don't I found know why. It awfully inconsistent. I mean, having having worked out what was going on, I was thinking, yeah, all right. Why on earth are you letting them play contact sports? <laughs> I mean, you could saying. put an eye out with that, and those eyes are precious. <laughs> Yeah, or uh, let them fight. Yeah, I mean, she does say you you must remain healthy. It's our most important thing. But yeah, exactly. These are yeah. I, uh, I don't know. To be fair, I th- I think that part of it is so that the reader who hasn't or the viewer who hasn't worked out what is going on can be lulled into thinking, well, this is just a normal school and it's a little bit weird. Yes. Until but they it work d- it out. It doesn't really particularly um, play up the mystery possibly because it assumes lots of people have read the book or at least know the synopsis of the film mm. before they're going to see it but the who they are is explained to them quite early on by the kindly uh she's very good uh that uh, actress as well sally hawkins yes. whom we have seen in ribbon of moons before we have she was in vera drake wasn't she she yeah. was the uh the uh the middle class upper class uh abortion um she's also paddington's mum <laughs> um. <laughs> she's very good. I've always enjoyed uh, watching her in anything she's been in. She's very good here. And again, she I... has a slightly distinctive face, which is a nice thing to see. Yes, yeah. Um, I I like that scene. I like that the reaction of the children is not horror. It's just like, oh well. Um, and they're worried about her um, and how upset she is. And mm. I, it, it rang true to me in a way because I don't know that just the implications of that don't really sit through, filter through with them, and I just I I in fact the whole of all the things that don't work about the film, which we'll probably come on to, I think the thing that I do think works and feels real is this kind of almost like sheep-like acceptance of their fate that they're just part of this system. It's slightly self-policing. Uh, and there probably are clones that that rail against it and try and break through, but these are these are not those kind of characters, and they probably form the vast majority of the characters that just mm. are part of it. And it, I I think that is a big part of human nature um, that it takes a yeah. lot to try and think outside the box and move away from well, everything you've always been told. Yeah, uh, there. Are, I, I I did have some questions, and some some of them the film did answer. Like, why are you bothering to educate them at all? When, yes. When when their entire job, entire life is going to consist of wait for the phone call that says we want your liver. Yes, exactly. Well, the implication uh, again it is sort of spelled out, isn't it? Is that this Hailsham was sort of an experiment to mm. see whether they did better being treated like humans, and now it's implied that. They basically, I think they actually say the other the other places are like battery farms. Um, yeah, which frankly is much more what I would expect. Yes, yeah, but so, yeah, that, 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 that to be fair is answered. Though I don't think it quite works. Um, there's, there's there's a lot of talk about whether they have souls, which even in 2005 is a pretty archaic way of putting it. And yeah, yeah are, are they are they humans? Can they really think like humans? But the thing is. By the time you have put them into a school, you've already answered that because you have trained them up to be humans. Yeah. In- enough that they can look like schoolchildren. It was a strange, you know, from a scientific perspective, you have. I mean, these creatures, if you want to call them that, are genetically identical to other people. That well, I, I, I'm thinking of feral children. Um, there are rather yeah. rather fewer historical examples of this than people have claimed, but there have been at least a few where, for whatever reason, they were raised in complete isolation, never hearing language, never interacting with people, and so on. Um, and depending on the degree of abuse, they, they either recover or they don't. But that's, yes. that seems to be the main determinant. Uh, e- even if you don't acquire language during the primary language acquisition phase, you do generally acquire it later, if if, if you then get the chance. Yes, that so, even shorn of all social situations, humans seem able to 
uh, fit into society, uh, as you say, depending on quite what they've been through. That that seems to be the case with feral children, as I understand it. And um, th- there's that's there's a scene in the cafe where they are clearly a bit awkward. We are, we, we've got to order things, and we, we've done this school exercise in it, but we don't really know how it works. Yeah. And it seems to me that the film is trying to imply that that is because they are clones, but it's I, I my thought was well. They they've been brought up not to know how to do this. Yeah, <laughs> they've been educated well, that, to be awkward, and that, in, there's, in an, there's an obvious that... reason why that might be done, which is any you know you you run away, you try to live a normal life, you just aren't equipped for it. So maybe that's some of the training that Kathy's character goes through because she seems to be more independent. Hmm. But that, that's agree... something I'm reading into the film rather than something that's stated. And maybe the idea of these later battery farms not to give them any kind of education at all. I mean, it seems like quite a limited education. There's largely, but understandably so. But then, why? Yeah, as you say, why you'd have contact sports as part of that? Um, uh, light I, light running, swimming, maybe some rowing, uh, exercise machines. Yes. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to be. It's interesting that because like, it's implied that this is an interesting question do these creatures have souls or not but frankly the film is never in any doubt they're just people and scientifically i wasn't in any doubt they're just people so i'm not sure quite well that's the thing uh, you, you you've got them to the point where they can be in a school and socializing and it seems to me that that is a much more significant indicator of can these can these creatures act like people than did any of them can- produce any art God, yeah, I mean, I'd be right up shit creek if the, <laughs> the criteria was you had to draw something for it to be considered human. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure quite. Well, and that, maybe that's clearer in the, the book, but the film didn't seem very interested in the question, are they people? It just assumes they are, and we do too. And it's obvious. So it becomes a well, bit of a non, non-question, non really. But that's the thing. I mean, what, what one could go to from there is, well, it's pretty... What, what's do the outside you know normal humans think of this yeah. um do do they just try to ignore it and um carry carry on with the plentiful supply of transplant organs which uh, as as you pointed out uh, um, uh, you, you can transplant a lot of organs without curing motor neuron disease that was I, I only came across me she specifically mentioned motor neuron disease <laughs> what kind of I, and as you replied, uh, I kind of in retort to that really is the kind of understanding you have of genetics, including how to stop a telomere shortening. Um, if you can do that, you can probably cure a lot of diseases just with that degree of genetic manipulation, mm. rather than the fairly um, blunt tool of taking a kidney out of someone and putting it in someone else. You could probably grow a kidney by itself. With that. But anyway, anyway yeah, um, I, uh, perhaps we should just dive briefly into Ribbon of Meme Science Corner. Yes. Um, <laughs> basically, telomeres are cellular elements, should we say? Uh, they're kind of random genetic. Uh, they're not cellular. They're on a, a chromatin. Uh, sorry, uh, the level of the chromosomes and they are attached there. Uh, a, a string of base pairs that are attached to the base of the chromosome, but which a, gets shorter a, as a with cell. every cell division. Yeah, uh, so it's not—it's not just the lifetime of the cell; it's the lifetime of the whole organism. Because yes. if, if it's got to this length and the cell divides, it stays at that length in the new cells. That's right. Yes, uh, um, which is, uh, and, and, and fixing fixing that is is essentially fixing many of the problems of aging because you, you know. Young pe- young people will regenerate from injury much better than older people will, and to to a large extent, that seems to be why, at least in the current state of understanding, it, it's certainly one of the reasons. It's also one of the first things uh, cancer cells do when they go cancery is to stop the tel- telomere shortening. Um, so it's 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 one of the ways you get an immortal cell line. And if you're um, that certainly didn't work with Dolly the sheep, uh, which is why she aged. Well, I don't know if that's why she aged prematurely, but she did age prematurely and didn't have a very long life. Um, and if you can fix that sort of thing, which, you know, genetically we can nowadays, but it's very hard to make clones. Um, well, that, that's the thing. But they talk about the originals, and one of, one yes. of, we, we meet somebody who might well be the donor for this particular person, uh, who is clearly a significantly older person. Yeah. So presumably, you know, you, you give a cell in your 20s or whatever. Um, 
Yeah, whether that's like a sperm donor bank or you get paid for it, I don't know. But it's yeah. implied that these are the the scum so, so, of the earth that um, that donate cells. But well, seems... again, that's just a thing that they're told. Yes, that's true. It may be. It, a, it does remind me a lot of that very irksome stage of childhood of all I've got to go on is what other people have said, <clears throat> r- yes. rather than actual data. Yes, and we we are never really given much in the way of actual data. But I. But my thought I, is, is simply that if if you have, you know, if if this person is a clone of somebody who's twenty years older, then when they are in their twenties, their cells are in their forties, and that's really not ideally what you want. Yes, so it does imply some understanding of not only genetics but epigenetics, which is uh, the way external factors um, uh, affect how your genes are expressed, um, and is one of the ways that we can actually inherit acquired characteristics, contrary to Darwin and going some way towards Lamarckian um, uh, inheritance. But I suppose the broader point is if you've got the, cloning is not that simple um, which is why we haven't really done it yet and if you've got that level of knowledge uh, it feels like there are uh, it just feels like there are better uses of it well specifically the epigenetic thing it. if you've cracked that then you can essentially say right well let's take some stem cells and feed them the right chemical cues to grow a liver Exactly, exactly. Um, or, conversely, you're much better at targeting cancer cells within other people's bodies. And it just feels like a very extremely inefficient and expensive way of using that knowledge to clone people. And raise them at presumably expense. raise them. I mean, that's an incredible amount of money you're putting into these people. I mean, who's paying for that? And then executing them I mean this is a this is supposed to be from the 50s onwards and it's a society that you know has already been through slavery and I just on a fundamental level I just don't buy it I don't buy I I do but understand that people will you know do a lot for immortality it's just uh, I don't buy the science behind it and I don't buy that people would be okay with it I, you know humans are capable of a lot of things but I don't know raising classrooms full of children you you I could argue know. that there may be objections but we never see them but well that's yes but that's just saying well it's that the writer's job is to put the stuff in the film I just it just <laughs> rather, doesn't rather ring than cause us to, to make it up yeah, I, I just don't think the society maybe, you know, a hundred years earlier when, uh, you know, it was people had, you know, even in the 50s the the attitudes towards well, you know a big thing about slavery, frankly, is they don't look quite like us, they're probably not like us. These people are, they look like you because they are you, they're genetically mm. identical and I don't it's pretty hard to be prejudiced unless you're just ageism. I don't know. I just didn't buy... Much like the whole thing with Foundation, where I just don't believe the central concept of psychohistory, it makes it very hard for me to believe the rest of the film. Fortunately, the the SF is not particularly to the fore here. It is really... I I think it would be fair to say, I mean, what what the literary writer might say is that where, where an SF novel has an idea because it wants to engage with it, this has an idea because it is part of the background. We're not, we're not supposed to be asking questions about, well, why do they do it this way? We're supposed to say, well, this is the situation. How how do these people cope with it? Yes. But the answer is that they just sit there and accept it. So, <laughs> I mean, um, I, I can sort of see what they're doing. Again, if you're going if you're going into it cold, as I mostly was, um, they, they're trying to say, well, here is this soap opera story. Uh, you know, the classic love triangle story, but then we've got this dark undertone to it, and you gradually work out what's going on. Yeah. Except they tell us blatantly what's going on. So pretty early on, yeah. And, and soap opera is not, to me, terribly interesting with without characters to drive it, and they don't have a lot of characterisation because deliberately they're not being raised with complex personalities. They're very naive, and and kind of the big kind of whoa surprise close. I feel like we've been very down on it. I'm going to say something <laughs> in its defence, uh, but the big surprise close that Kathy says is basically kind of, well, you know, isn't this just like all of us that we live this directionless life and we we're all fated to 
be exploited throughout our lives and isn't that a bit like we are <laughs> I mean she doesn't say it in those so many words but you're supposed to think hang on that's a bit like me in a capitalist society I suppose and that's true and I think that is an interesting point it just felt a bit I found uh, myself now... thinking Larry Niven, another short story, Cautionary Tales from 1978, basically a, a, a human who is obsessed with uh, finding a way to live longer yes. meet, meets and talks with an alien who has a similar obsession and it comes out casually that this alien is already tens of thousands of years old. <laughs> and the um... human thinks, okay, that... I, I could make, even if I could get another thousand, it clearly wouldn't be enough unless I lived it right. So why don't I just start living it right? Yeah, again, it's a short story. Yeah. I um, think so, well, I, that yeah. goes against the, the idea that, you know, SF, and there are certainly some FS, SF writers that are guilty of it. SF is all about the concepts and the characters are just, um, uh, uh, ciphers for this plot and they don't have any interesting characters where the lit fit comes in uh, and it's more interested in the, the characters uh, but to be honest SF hasn't really been like that for a long time they're a lot more mm. interesting characters in science fiction now um, and exactly you know that Larry Niven story and Larry Niven's a good example of someone who does do interesting characters reacting to not you. always but yeah yeah. Not always. Um, I, I reread the... Ringworld a year or two ago it was a big mistake oh, I uh <laughs> I, I will say the thing that upset me most about Ringworld is they use tange as a swear word, which is just the least satisfying thing to <laughs> say when you hit yourself on the thumb with a hammer. Um, I think it's the acronym There Ain't No Justice, which mm -hmm. I just think is possibly the worst SF swear word I've ever heard. Um, I, I, I must admit that I, I did keep getting distracted by casual direction choices. Like, okay, here we've got a scene where, where they're talking in the car. Fine. They should be psychologically incapable of riding in a car without wearing a seatbelt. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, I absolutely, I just, every new scene seemed to open more questions to me as to, hang on, why are they allowed to, why is Kerry Mulligan's character allowed a car at all? Uh, all the roads seem to be single track roads as well. In, in um, <laughs> Okay, I'm going to come to its defence a little bit. So I think ultimately we probably both agree it's not as clever on the SF side than it thinks it is, and there's a lot of plot holes and questions as to how the whole thing's supposed to work. Um, I, I I do think, and I completely agree, it was beautifully acted, and there is a part of me, uh, particularly by the child actors, um, but hmm. I, I liked all the adult actors too. I, I was taken by Carey Mulligan, um, but I, uh, but I, I do agree you know, one of your objections to Kathy's character is she's a bit drippy and quiet and just sits there and doesn't do anything. And the whole film is shot through with this kind of melancholy sadness. Um, and I really respond to that. I quite, I don't know why, but I quite enjoy that feeling of that, that sadness and that quiet tragedy, the kind of quiet catastrophe. Mm. It sort of feels a bit John Wyndham, that kind of sad things are happening and oh well never mind stiff up a lip and I don't know why I really sort of respond to it um, and, and so I, I did enjoy watching the film um, but I didn't love it but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, but well... then look I've worked in operating theatres you do not have your eyes open when you're under a general anaesthetic no, I don't, I, again, I don't know. Maybe they use some special clone. I, I have but... personally taped people's eyes shut because it was necessary that they not dry out. Even if you're a nightly scene where yeah, she that, was that's, already that's... dead, and then they play the the cardiac. Well, I, she looked already dead to me. Yeah, <laughs> you, don't, you don't just lie there with your eyes open. On e an even if you are meat, as far as the as far as the medical team is concerned, your corneas are valuable. <laughs> exactly. Um, I yes. I mean, there are a lot of uh, problems in inaccurate. I mean, the 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 real humans never seem sort of uncaring particularly about the about the clones. Um, uh, let's see. There, there's that um, hospital clerk uh, who has the screen on which um, Kathy finds out about Ruth. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and she's she... she's just she's just doing her job. She's not saying, "Oh, poor clones." She's not saying, ooh, you're a bit weird. She's just talking with a professional colleague. Well, I, I think those sorts of things worked well for me. That, you know, given this kind of situation, this kind of society, people were just sort of dealing with it and getting on with it. Um, 
I mean, uh, yes, th- that that's a bit I can believe. You know, this is an uncomfortable thing to think about. Therefore, I will not think about it. That's kind of the banality of evil, isn't it? There was just sort of, well, here we go. Let's perpetuate this society. I I did. I really and I, I'm a soppy old bugger. I I enjoyed the the love triangle and the sadness of it and the the lost time and the fact that oh we could have had all, but it really did remind me of Remains of the Day. Um, because all the themes of Remains of the Day are about it, it's a very melancholy film and it's all about lost opportunities and if only I'd said this at that time maybe this could have worked out and maybe this will happen oh no it doesn't oh well never mind <laughs> stiff up a bit and it felt very similar to that um, and I like I, I I respond well to that though I found Remains of the Day more frustrating. Just talking teller. Um, but um, here, I wasn't frustrated. Um, I, I sort of enjoyed the melancholy side. I'll be honest, once once it was clear what was happening, there were basically no surprises in the film, is that fair to say? It hmm. went exactly where I thought it well, would once go. We, once we meet uh, the headmistress again, and, oh, and, absolutely and once, that, once that's over. Even before there, really. I mean, when they when they're talking about a deferment, and mm. you know it's you know it's nonsense. I mean, you know what these yeah. characters have been brought up to believe. I just it never really surprised me, um, or it did interest me. I, I don't know. There's something about I I found the kids hard to watch from a parental perspective. I said this already, but I, I, there was something about the children having no future and them passively accepting it that made me think about, you know, rage, rage against the dying of the light. There's, there was something really upsetting about that, but it was hard to maintain that upset when they were not upset. They were mm. just quite passive about it. Um, I mean, it, it would be fair to argue that this, this, is the, this is the big point, that the easiest way to prevent a revolution, an uprising, whatever, is yeah. to say, well, yeah, we just don't give them the the mental tools to um, have an uprising. Yeah. Not, I, but they I just think, can't think of it. I think both of us, perhaps I'm speaking out of it, both of us would have been interested to see the broader history and uh, where the first clone uprising happened and their fight for independent rights and how that eventually worked out. Because that's, you know, that's the way it would go eventually. Um but we never see any of that. Um, we just have this, as a, with literary fiction often, we just have this fairly small scope love triangle, which mm. I liked. I found it interesting. Uh, I, it's hard to... I, when you don't quite believe the backdrop and when the final revelation is, oh, isn't that a bit like us? Um, I don't know if that was said in Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> <We're talking. laughs> um but I, I suppose that's a, an interesting broader point in that there were the points it was making about fate and a bit, uh, as you said in the Larry Niven story, really what you probably take from that is, you know, we're all we're all going to complete at some point and, you know, to, to use their euphemism, and we're all uh, to some extent victims of the society that we're embedded within and we should just try and live the best and happiest lives we can within it. On the one hand, it is absolutely bad for somebody to obsess over decisions that they that they feel they got wrong. Yes. On yeah. the other hand, that does not mean you don't try to learn from them and, and make different ones next time. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's an interesting point, which I found... Uh, I don't know, though. It's, it's sort of a... Is it rude to say that's sort of a banal point, which is not terribly new... I got the feeling that there was there was a, there was a lot of uh, dressing it up, and what was at the core was not actually terribly complex or or new or original or thought provoking even. Yeah, I, I I ultimately I agree. Uh, cinematographically, um, I was definitely noticing. Oh right, we've got a grim, dark, desaturated school. We've got a grim. <laughs> we've got the grim, dark, desaturated farm cottages. We've yes. got, oh, a seaside cafe that is just grim and desaturated and not dark. <laughs> oh, God. It had the kind of aesthetic of 50s Britain, uh, which we've encountered before and I find generally depressing. <laughs> For some reason, it didn't work. It felt a bit more home counties and a bit slightly more cheerful than uh, Dance with a Stranger or Vera Drake 
probably there are other two fifties sets. Well, I, I think in both of those we've we've got the suggestion that other people somewhere else are are having a good time that we know about because it's set more or less in the real world. <laughs> yes. Whereas yeah. here we have no idea of what normal people's lives are like. Um, what we see in the travel agency looks fairly normal, but who knows? Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to have transformed society that much. I agree. The aesthetic. I don't know why I found that all right. There's something about a boarding school. I don't. Well, I don't know. I should find it depressing. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know why I respond to that melancholy because I will admit, um, it gets dangerously close to boring. This film. Did you find it boring? Was it slow moving? In places, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have it's to a, work. We bit... have to work through the soap opera stuff, even though we've worked out that it's soap opera stuff, and we've got the hint that there's something else going on, and would quite like to know more about something else going on. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I think that's for Raza's SF nerds. Uh, the soap opera. Not that I'm uninterested in Carrie. I just um, the, the whole idea raises so many questions that I want to explore and have hmm. answered. That because this is literary fiction, it's not interested in answering. Literary fiction is just another goddamn genre, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, is it Stephen King that says literary fiction is just um, uh, extraordinary people doing ordinary things, uh, whereas science fiction is um, ordinary people having extraordinary things happen to them. Hey. Which, uh, which may be true. I don't know, but I don't. Literary fiction is not automatic. I mean, it certainly doesn't sell any better than any other genre of fiction. And I don't know that it's. I don't know. I have always found the best science fiction explores the most human things. I mean, that mm. is science fiction at its best. And I don't know that we've encountered this before with um with Alex Garland with zombies. You know, you know uh, that they. I feel like they're doing the the new thing that no one else has ever done before, but it has been done before mm. quite often. Um, that was a bit unfair because actually, Twenty Eight Days Later does have some interesting new takes on zombie fiction. And what we both liked about Twenty Eight Days Later was, unlike most of zombie fiction, which is like, oh, we're the real bastards, we're real monsters. Twenty Eight Days Later was about, well, that you can have a family unit, and that's a special and important thing. Mm. Which it then pissed away with 28 weeks later. Well, th there was a thing that I was actually reminded of 28 weeks later, and I wondered if it might have had the same composer, but it didn't. Um, the, the music here is by Rachel Portman, who is a very experienced film composer. I think she's done over 100 film scores in her career. Okay. But it's got that same, we've got, we've got this fairly limited theme palette, and every time a bit of music starts, it's the same four notes. <laughs> And I off, think it was less it, egregious just, really than um, twenty eight weeks later. I found very that was uh, that got quite wearing quite quickly. I yeah, but but particularly later. towards the end, I, I was being oh right, yeah, okay, this is theme number two. <laughs> <laughs> it was shot through with a lot of um, orchestral sad music, um, which felt a bit manipulative. Yeah, well, we're running out of steam a bit. I guess I'll never let me go. Have <laughs> you have you anything else to say about it? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it does what it does. It doesn't say it badly. Oh yeah, um, d uh, interview with Mark Romanek. He said he did not want to make a science fiction film. Rather, he was presenting a love story with a fictional science context mixed in, oh, and oh, that is the thing that a non-science fiction person will say. Will always uh, say the answer oh, to the newsletter call it science fiction. produced every month by Dave Langford always has some some new quotes about. Oh, it's not science fiction. It's it's got real people in it, or yeah. whatever. Piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, sorry. Maybe we've we've just heard that far too often by people who've written subpar science fiction, but <laughs> but said, "Oh, it's not science fiction." Um, yeah, all right. I, I get that In, it was interesting the point ideas. Of the story. I got frustrated by the ideas not being explored, and arguably, you know, if, if Ishiguro or Romanek had sat me down and said, "That's not what it's for," that's quite plausibly what they might have thought. But yeah. I, I, I still want to explore. I, I have a mind that wants to engage with ideas as well as with people and plots. So yes, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, when you said fundamentally at its core, uh, the ideas are not that new or not that interesting. I think that's fair enough, really. And as a story about people, yeah, it's better. It's still, yes. to my mind, not great, but it is better. Yeah, you know, we, we've got we've got 
level one, the standard um, romantic triangle story, interrupted by level two, you're all going to get killed. And then yes. it doesn't go to what where I'd like to go, level three, and here is what we're going to do about it. Yeah, but um, even, kind of... but even the two level thing, it, it, it does does work reasonably well. It does, and you sort of know from the outset it's never going to be that sort of film where these are the rem. It might dangle some hope in front of you, but it's never. You just you know it, <laughs> so it's not a surprise that that's how it goes, and yeah. they all get killed. Uh, yeah, there we are. It was it was nice. I don't regret, but it was also a sub two hour film. Mm. Uh, I'm never going to be unhappy about a sub two hour film. Thank you. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it more than some some that we've. I probably enjoyed the process of it, watching it more than I enjoyed our recent District Nine. Probably. Mm. It, it's certainly not one that that I hated. And I have hated a couple of the ones we've done. Here. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. it, it felt a bit. Well, is that all at the end? I think. Yeah, you you could have done a lot more with this, and you didn't. Yeah, maybe that's our genre showing, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I take the genre away from it. I don't know that it says much more, as you say. Well, there we are. Never let me go. I quite like the song "Never Let Me Go," though. So that was uh, that was nice. Um, yeah, which was, I believe, recorded specifically for it. I think so. It's not a, not a genuine song from uh, written by Luther Dixon, sung by Jane Monheit. It doesn't feature that prominently in the film. Maybe it does more in the book, but at the well, very least, it sounds like a plausible song for that context, which is you know, hard to do. Well, there we are. Thank you, um, uh, Mark Romanek uh, et al. Um, we'll get back to you <laughs> about future. Uh, he um, hasn't. We... He hasn't made a feature film since this. Um, Has he not? Which is surprising. I, I mean, it, it, it got a generally good, but reasonable box office. Um, it, it it had a decent opening weekend, but it sank quite quickly after that, and I think that may be why it hasn't been pushed again. Maybe you know, made various suggestions. Maybe it was too early in the year. Um, sli- slightly too boring. downbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not enough tits, you know. Whatever. <laughs> well, um, a, a fair point. Um, it, yeah. it, it did get general, generally positive reviews. Um, but yeah, doesn't seem to have been a great success overall. Not my favourite. Not even my favourite of 2010. <laughs> to be <laughs> fair, but it's all right. I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad we watched mm. these things. Yeah. If nothing else, to remind me that um, the genre fiction is pretty good quite often. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. We will reconvene in 20. I didn't open this with a quote because. I couldn't find any interesting quotes to open it with. Um, I could have narrated it, but um, I couldn't be bothered. Yeah, um, yeah and similarly, I'm not going to close out with one either. Bye. Bye. <laughs>